0: Welcome to the Three Martini Lunch. Grab a stool next to Greg Corumbus of Radio America and Jim Garrity of National Review. Three Martini's coming up.
1: Hey, we've once again made it to Friday. A major accomplishment this year on the Three Martini Lunch. And grab your stool. We're all set for you. We've got, I think, good, bad, and crazy. Could be a good and two bads. We'll see how it really plays out here. Brought to you today by the Headspace app. Uh, Jim, let's talk about our good martini. and just. The last couple of days, we've been talking about how the schools are scrambling right now. We talked about the whole Cuomo versus de Blasio mess in New York City where Governor Cuomo was saying, of course they're going to be open. And then uh, de Blasio, of course, sent everybody home because they met whatever the threshold was. I don't know if that was, that must be the red zone, the orange zone, whatever zone they were in. The kids aren't going to school right now in New York City and it's happening other places around the country as well. But the research is starting to come in, Jim, and keeping kids out of school is not really the big issue when it comes to stopping the spread of the coronavirus. Going to Politico here. The research points in the direction of kids being able to attend schools without major risk of contracting the coronavirus. School shutdowns and parents' pain are going the other way, increasing by the day around the country. It also says a new report from UNICEF said child-to-child transmission of the coronavirus in schools was uncommon and not the primary cause of infections among children who caught the virus while attending school based on a July assessment of 31 countries. Children were more likely to get infected outside of school settings, and even those who did get infected inside school is usually student to student or teacher to teacher. Not what everybody's been talking about, uh, students possibly infecting teachers and so forth. So while the schools sort this out, and a lot of them are going to see what they, where things stand post Thanksgiving break or maybe even Christmas break, uh, you even got the unions uh, saying that uh, you need to get back in the classroom to some extent here, uh, which is not where they were at the, the beginning of the school year. So I think we're headed in the right direction here, Jim. And uh, for anyone with kids who have been home and staring at a screen for hours and hours on end, you know it's not the same thing as in-person instruction.
0: Yeah. Um, first of all, Greg, I want to start out. That is a really good Andrew Cuomo impression. Thank you. <laughs> uh, you know, I, I want listeners, take a moment just to appreciate how good that is. Um, National Review will have a staff editorial on the topic of the New York City public schools and their decision to shut down. Um, it speaks for the magazine as a whole, and we generally don't talk about who wrote it, but let's just say I think it's really good. You can guess, <laughs> guess who decided to write that one. Um, and it is, uh, there's, there's a reference to Dr. Anthony Fauci, who was on CNN last night with Chris Cuomo, and he said, you know, you want to make sure you take steps to protect the children, and protect the teachers. But having said that, my feeling is the default position is to keep the schools open if you possibly can. One of the factors that I think isn't getting nearly enough attention is that each state or each locality kind of decided what they wanted their threshold to be for when they should say, okay, it's getting too many cases, getting too dangerous, time to send the kids home. Um, now, the CDC said that anything below 5%, you're at the lowest level. They even said anything below 20% positive test still represents a lower risk of significant transmissions in schools. Andrew Cuomo, who is not, we're not a fan of, but he said he put statewide the threshold is 9%. When New York City decided to reopen the schools, they said they were going to set their threshold for 3%. Now, that is the lowest in the entire country. As I just said, that's two points lower than the, uh, the CDC said your, your lowest risk category. What's more, once a month, they send a whole bunch New York city public schools, sends a whole bunch of people to test people in schools. They pick people at random, um, all students, random staff, random, uh, random staff, ra- random, uh, students grades, first grade through 12th grade. They try to do 10 to 20% of a school's population each month for October. We don't know the November results yet. We're still in November, but for October, The positivity rate was 0.17%. And just make sure we're clarifying, that's not 17%. That is 17 one hundredths of 1%. There is very, very little coronavirus in the schools, at least as of October. It it may be getting worse this month. But basically so far, even if you you take this threshold that they've established, that is the the easiest hair trigger for the closing of the schools in the entire country. Now, we've talked about in this podcast plenty of times the effect of this on schools. I'm glad you're starting to see pushback. I'm glad you're starting to see both parents and even a whole bunch, even a whole bunch of teachers who are presumably members of the teachers' union are saying, look, I really, you know, we set this up stopping on a dime, never knowing whether we're going to have school. Um, I mean, Greg, it must be like being a parent in Fairfax County during winter when it could snow. <laughs> um, but jokes aside, this is not serving our kids very well if you are a grown-up. If you are an adult, if you're an elected official, if you're a school administrator, if you're a teacher, if you're a parent, you have a duty to say, okay, how do we get these kids educated? What is the, um, we recognize there's a pandemic, we realize it's not over, we realize that there's been a big spike in cases across the whole country. How do we get this so the kids can get in person as much as possible, as much as possible safely? And you know, by the way, New York City has done the uh, frequent hand washing, wearing of masks, uh, two to three days a week, alternating days, they've taken a whole bunch of these steps. That's one of the reasons the rates have been so slow. Um, I'm glad to see the pushback. I think there will probably – look, we're entering another spike in cases. It's winter. People are going to spend more time indoors. People spend more time indoors, it spreads a little bit faster. It's just, you know, the nature of the beast. Um, but I'm glad to see that you're seeing more people saying, look, keeping the schools closed is just not going to be an option. Uh, I'm glad the vaccines are coming, but you're real. We're going to pay a serious price if our kids don't get um, – any in-person teaching for the entirety of a year. And uh, so bravo to everybody who's pushing back. And I'd like to say everybody who has treated Anthony Fauci, who I think is a really good guy, as a saint for the past nine months. Dear teachers unions, dear government officials, this is a good time. If Fauci, Fauci's telling you to open up the schools, you hearing that Fairfax County? You hear that? Anyway, so maybe we'll get somewhere, Greg. That, that's our, this is a cautiously optimistic uh, uh, martini for the day.
1: Yeah, I'm curious to see uh, the, the shift of the unions here. And I have a theory because, of course, uh, before the school year started back in the summer, uh, the position of a lot of unions, local and and larger than that, was, why are you sending us in here to die? We're not going back until uh, we have assurance that things are safe. And some, like out in L.A., were even saying, well, we're not going until there's Medicare for all. I mean, they just turned it into yeah. a referendum on all the different policies that they wanted. But I'm wondering, Jim, and I haven't seen these numbers. Maybe you have, have looked at it. I wonder how many parents have decided not to send their kids back to public schools when the numbers of enrollment are going down because they're doing private school or homeschool or some other arrangement uh, that that becomes a money issue. And, oh, well, maybe we do need to get back into the classroom. I hope it's not that cynical, but I have a feeling it might be a big part of it.
0: I think that may very well be a factor, Greg. The thing I kind of keep in mind is that uh, here in Fairfax County, they had the Survey over the summer of, you know, do you want to go back two days a week or do you want to continue all online? And the teacher, a majority of the teachers split for remaining all online, but I want to say it was like, you know, 70, 30, maybe 65, 35, or something like that. So you've got teachers who want to get back into the classroom. Uh, you've got teachers who, you know, I think almost every teacher misses their kids and, and they're doing the best they can with online learning. And so far, my boys are doing okay with it, but every, you know, almost every teacher would acknowledge this is not. Not only is this not ideal, most of them would acknowledge this is a poor substitute. And I think there's a whole bunch of teachers who are like, no, I'm fed up with this. I want to get back in there. Now, look, there are probably some teachers who are immunocompromised. There are probably some teachers who are in high-risk categories who might feel like, you know, I just don't feel comfortable getting into a school and around a lot of people unless, uh, uh, unless there's a vaccine, you know. But we're also at a point where as bad as the current spikes are, the treatments have gotten better. You know, being in a school is less likely to be a death sentence for you. Now, you still want to get the virus. There's still, you know, there's still a chance you'd end up in the ICU. It's not, it's not good. It's not fun. But chances are, we you know, 40% of people are, are going to be asymptomatic. And the odds are you're probably going to be okay. And the question is, okay, it's one thing to keep the schools closed in March when everybody's continued to school year. It's another thing to do it after nine months in which, you know, every, almost every student has, you know, backslid at least a little bit because spending, you know, five to six hours staring at a screen all day is just not good for them, period. So say, put aside all the other psychological effects we've been dealing with.
1: Speaking of psychological effects, this can be a very stressful time. It has been a stressful time in a lot of different ways. And uh, like all parents, we've been uh, trying to figure out ways to uh, keep our kids on a, a normal schedule and to keep them uh, focused on things that won't stress them out. Uh, lots of fresh air, uh, we've uh, got them reading a lot, now that both of them can read, and uh, playtime that doesn't involve screens. Uh, we definitely take a lot of uh, comfort in our, in our prayer and Bible time, and uh, the Headspace app is uh, another uh, way that uh, other folks are finding ways to get through these difficult times, because life can be stressful even under normal circumstances. 2020 <laughs> has been even more challenging uh, because of all the things we've had to go through, and you need to find stress relief that goes beyond quick fixes, and that's Headspace.
0: Headspace is your daily dose of mindfulness in the form of guided meditations in an easy-to-use app. Headspace is one of the only meditation apps advancing the field of mindfulness and meditation through clinically validated research. So whatever the situation, Headspace really can help you feel better. Overwhelmed? Headspace has a three-minute SOS meditation for you. Need some help falling asleep? Headspace has wind-down sessions their members swear by. And for parents, Headspace even has morning meditations you can do with your kids. Headspace's approach to mindfulness can reduce stress, improve sleep, boost focus, and increase your overall sense of well-being.
1: As I mentioned yesterday, Jim, our chief of operations here at Radio America thinks very highly of Headspace. He says that covering this news cycle, many of uh, our employees here need to decompress and recharge each day. And he says that uh, many on the team use Headspace to refresh their minds, flush out the daily buildup of conflict, chaos, and worries that drag all of us down. He says it makes them sleep better at night and that they're more focused during the day and they feel better, which we all need in a year like 2020. So Headspace is backed by 25 published studies on its benefits, 600,000 five-star reviews, and over 60 million downloads. Headspace makes it easy for you to build a life-changing meditation practice that works for you on your schedule anytime, anywhere. You deserve to feel happier, and Headspace is meditation made simple. Go to headspace.com slash martini. That's headspace.com slash martini for a free one-month trial with access to Headspace's full library of meditations for every situation. This is the best deal they're offering right now, so head to headspace.com slash martini today. All right, Jim, on to the bad martini. And... Let's just talk about yesterday's press conference at the RNC featuring the Trump campaign attorneys, uh, Rudy Giuliani, Sidney Powell, uh, Jenna Ellis, I think I saw Joe DeGeneva and Victoria Tunsing there and, and possibly some others. Uh, and basically their argument is, is that this, this fight is not over yet. Uh, there was major voter fraud and it was done through Dominion Voting Systems and others. Uh, here's Sidney Powell explaining how the algorithm uh, was normally supposed to shift votes and then the huge Trump turnout actually is the reason that they had to stop the counting in the major Democratic urban areas uh, to recalibrate. Here's what she said. One of its most characteristic features is its ability to flip votes. It can set and run an algorithm that probably ran all over the country to take a certain percentage of votes from President Trump and flip them to President Biden which we might never have uncovered had the votes for President Trump not been so overwhelming in so many of these states that it broke the algorithm that had been plugged into the system. And that's what caused them to have to shut down in the states they shut down in. Then last night on the Tucker Carlson program, he actually poured some cold water on this, saying that they invited Sidney Powell on time and time again, as long as she brought some evidence with her. And this is what he said her response was.
0: So we invited Sidney Powell on the show. We would have given her the whole hour. We would have given her the entire week, actually, and listened quietly the whole time at rapt attention. That's a big story. But she never sent us any evidence, despite a lot of requests, polite requests. Not a page. When we kept pressing, she got angry and told us to stop contacting her. When we checked with others around the Trump campaign, people in positions of authority, they told us Powell has never given them any evidence either, nor did she provide any today at the press conference.
1: So the large media narrative, Jim, is that there's no evidence here. They do have some affidavits, but obviously uh, they're going to need a lot more than an affidavit or two to uh, prove what actually happened here. They're going to need forensic technical evidence. That has not been provided yet. They say they're going to, going to do that in court. But uh, from what we've seen in court so far, the promises have not matched up with what they've actually argued. They're running out of time. And like we've said, because we haven't covered every twist and turn in this fight, Jim, They're going to have to put up or shut up in court. They're running out of days to do it. But uh, what did you make of yesterday's presentation?
0: It was bonkers. It (laughs) was was bonkers. It was crazy. It was disturbing. I'm not even going to make jokes about uh, the hair dye that was apparently running down the sides of Giuliani's face. Um, Look, the the position of lawyer to the president carries with it some responsibility, as does the Office of the Presidency of the United States. And you're not supposed to toss around accusations willy-nilly. Uh, and anything you say in a press conference or on social media, you presumably would be willing to uh, repeat uh, in a courtroom. Uh, now, pointing out that there are consequences for lawyers who uh, make false statements in a courtroom. You, you know, when you judge, when you lie to a judge, judges tend to get pretty irked about that. I, I laid this all out in today's Morning Jolt newsletter. You don't have to believe me. You, you, if, you, if you think I'm wrong on this, Fine go to democracydocketcom right all they have on there they have links to posts of the legal documents for every one of these court cases that have been filed after the election also ones before the election and uh, ongoing cases and they have you know you can look at the cases you can look at the affidavits you can look at the appeals you can in some cases you can look at the oral arguments where they've been transcribed read them yourself if you think that I am mischaracterizing them in short, the Trump campaign lawyers are making very small, limited arguments about small group, about a couple hundred votes here and there. And in many cases, when asked directly by the judge or by opposing counsel, are you alleging fraud? They have said no. They've basically been saying these are technical errors. They are not saying this is a vast conspiracy by a bunch of voting machine companies and election officials and election volunteers and clerks and everybody else to steal the election. What you are hearing from Trump on his Twitter feed and also from Rudy Giuliani yesterday and from Sidney Powell yesterday is not the same as what the Trump campaign lawyers have been saying. Now, I keep people hearing people say, well, they, yeah, but they're going to do it. They're going to do it. Okay. Time's running out. I mean, like if they've got evidence, fine. They point. Okay, Giuliani kept referring to multiple affidavits. My understanding is that there's one affidavit and an affidavit isn't nothing. Uh, someone who submits a false affidavit can be convicted of perjury. So, you know, that, that's a little more weight behind that. But ultimately, it's one person saying something and, you know, uh, presume, you know, basically, it's conceivable that they're lying because it may be they feel like, well, I'm not really gonna get convicted for perjury over this. We're gonna see what happens. Um, but basically, none of this stuff shakes out. And <clears throat> the fact that Sidney Powell would not go on to, to Tucker Carlson is a really glaring red flag. Because Tucker Carlson... Uh, While I don't know if he agrees with every single stance and every single decision that Donald Trump has ever made, he's generally pretty pro-Trump. I think we can all kind of agree on that. I think it's safe to say he's not going to uh, conduct a particularly combative, hostile interview like that. He laid out how he's open to uh, to UFOs, so he's open to arguments. The fact that Sidney Powell wouldn't offer anything. And then apparently afterwards, she said, oh, Tucker was rude and obnoxious in the inquiries. Well, one, I, I, you know, we'll see, you know, maybe he did, maybe he was, maybe he wasn't, but like, okay, he's rude. So we're not going to share any of this, any of this uh, information at all. Look, either this is all going to come out in the courtroom or it's not, but it hasn't so far. It's November 20th. It is now more than two and a half weeks since election day. Now I know that Republicans are predisposed to believe that voter fraud is plausible. We have memories of ballots being found in the trunk of the car in Al Franken's Senate race back in 2008. We have memories of the 2004 Washington governor's race with Dino Rossi. Keep in mind, these are races that came down to a couple hundred votes. We probably have read, or at least you haven't, I suggest you go through the Heritage Foundation's extensive research and documentation on their website that lays out all the cases of convictions of, of voter fraud. Now, if you read through most of them, you'll notice most of them are talking about a handful of votes. You're not seeing, maybe in one or two, you're finding hundreds. But generally, we're talking about a couple of votes here, a couple of votes there, a couple dozen. You're not seeing ones that are in the neighborhood of tens of thousands, which is what Biden's margin is in most of these swing states. So you could basically, if the Trump campaign went out and said, we think there's been uh, ballot harvesting, people had questions about that. Um, You point back to the cases of ACORN, uh, and they actually had a couple actual convictions there. Now, again, in those cases, we're talking about a dozen, uh, a dozen ballots here, a dozen ballots there. But people would say, OK, it's happened before. It's plausible that it could have happened again. What you would not have found, though, is the ability to say, oh, and there are 20,000 fraudulent votes for Biden in this state. And there are 30,000 in that one and 40,000 in that one. You just wouldn't have the evidence to, to you know, support that kind of argument. So you need some other case of, oh, this isn't just you know, the, the, the sequel to ACORN going and doing a dozen votes here. A dozen. You need something big. You need something that would be changing massive amounts of votes. And they have come up with this kooky theory that the voting machines, you press, you know, Trump, and it turned it into a vote to Biden. Now, a lot of what Powell and Giuliani laid out yesterday was false. I tried to go through it in the morning jolt. I'm just going to try to hit the highlights. Dominion Voting Systems and Smartmatic are competitors. They're two different companies that compete for contracts with localities for running for use of their machines and their software. So the idea that they're working together, it's like Coke and Pepsi are working in it together to, to get you or something like that. So the second thing is Dominion voting systems have been used in 28 states. They've been used in Ohio. They've been used in Florida, states that Trump won. So, you know, and oh, by the way, they don't, you know, companies and counties and states don't just say, yeah, anybody, any bid will be fine. Any company's fine. They check this stuff out, right? State of Florida, uh, State Division of Elections goes through the voting systems, checks them to make sure that they're safe, that they're secure, that they're effective. And they've certified it. This is by the Florida Secretary of State, who is a retired former US attorney, former judge, appointed by Governor Ron DeSantis. If you believe the Dominion voting systems are part of a vast you know, effort to take away votes from Trump and put them in the Biden pile, then you have to argue that Governor Ron DeSantis and his appointees are part of this. Uh, get into the Department of Homeland, Cybersecurity, and Infrastructure Security Agency. They said that this company checks out, uh, they've said there's no indication that there's any computer problems. Uh, of significance in this election. Cybersecurity Infrastructure Security Agency reports to DHS. DHS is run by Chad Wolf. Chad Wolf answers to the president of the United States. Just how high does this anti-Trump, you know, conspiracy go? Uh, The founders of Smartmatic, they are Venezuelan Americans. They immigrated from Venezuela, but they founded the company in Florida. Uh, And oh, by the way, you know, back in 2017, they accused President Nicolas Maduro of rigging the election. So Giuliani's running around saying that this company is Venezuelan. It's not. They're saying that it's allies of Maduro and uh, and Hugo Chavez. They're not. In fact, they've came out and they've made accusations against the regime. Uh, But then finally, for this idea of, no, no, the machines are changing the votes from one way to, well, Georgia just did a hand recount. If the hand recount, if, if the machines were altering the votes, then this hand recount that looks at every ballot should have seen, hey, wait a minute, our hand recount is coming out with a whole bunch more votes for Trump than the original one. There was not. Trump picked out about 1,400 votes in the initial count. It basically comes down to a couple of counties. Uh, did not count, and I looked this up this morning, 5,262 votes. I'm glad they did the recount. I think that's a big, you know, I think it's important that those votes get counted. But they didn't take away Biden's lead. Biden's lead is in the neighborhood of 12,284 votes. That's That's what it was. Sorry, people. Trump lost the election. All of this stuff is kooky nonsense. All of this is acid eating away at our faith in in our free elections. And at some point it just gets into, if you really believe that this is all a conspiracy of the voting machine companies and all the election volunteers and the state uh, elections officials, secretaries of state and state attorney generals and DHS and the cybersecurity expert, Mm -hmm. at that point, why are you voting in elections if you think the entire system of elections is rigged to ensure your candidate loses. And oh by the way, if all of this was going on, why did they do why didn't they rig the senate elections? Why didn't they rig the house elections so the republicans did so well? None of this makes sense. And if you're buying into it, I'm sorry dear listeners, you have been calmed.
1: Well the clock is pretty much fixed here on certification and certainly the electoral college which I believe meets on December 14th. So our our, our basic premise here that it's put up or shut up time is now pretty much down to what, about 24 days? I mean, so I, I don't see anything happening right now that's gonna stop the Electoral College from meeting. Uh, I know with everything that happened in Michigan this week, there was some talk that the electors would be decided by the legislature, which is controlled by Republicans. Those leaders shot that down. So as of right now, I don't think that the timetable has been disrupted much.
0: No, I mean, ultimately these, none of these things alter the process. Certification of the votes is going forward in these states. Uh, today is Georgia. Um, basically, all the swing states do it between now and December first. I want to say that's the, the day Wisconsin does it. Um, you've heard the drama over in Michigan. There's, you know, look the state. There's no indication the state board of canvassers is going to not certify the vote. Secretary of State will certify it. Governor will sign off on it, and Michigan will go ahead with this just like everybody else. At this point, there's no indication that anything is going to change. No, the state legislatures are not going to meet and determine that the vote is irrevocably tainted and decide to name their own electors in support of Trump, like they're not going to do this. And you know, the, the idea that they should do this is basically, you know, that, that then we are getting into the territory of a coup. Then we are getting into the territory of we're going to ignore election results based on unproven, you know, claims of massive fraud. And it's because of that, we are going to, uh, you know, ignore what they've said and decide we're going to pick the guy we want at that point. Then you really are going to have a crisis in this country. Jim, I hear a lot of people
1: saying, and it's perhaps a non sequitur, but, I, but I, I think it needs to be addressed, well, they're talking about how everybody's got to accept election results and get over it, but uh, we had to deal with Russian collusion uh, for three plus years, or at least to the summer of 2019, uh, when the Mueller report finally came out, and that turned out not to be true, but uh, that was an attempt to derail or, or diminish the, the, the Trump presidency. Well, but, that's basically uh, what-
0: saying it's okay for us to lie because they lied. It's basically saying that they were peddling nonsense, so it's okay for us to peddle nonsense in response. Uh, I had an exchange with Scott Ritter. You may remember him from the inspection of the Iraqi weapons of mass oh, destruction wow. days. Oh wow! Yeah. All right. So on Twitter, he said, "No, no, we're not being conned. We're simply enjoying watching Trump cram into a few weeks the kind of unadulterated bad word that the Russia Gate crowd shoved down our throats for four years. It's entertaining." And then he used a GIF of uh, Gladiator. Are you not entertained? <laughs> So I asked him, are you, am I understanding you correctly? You agree that all of these post-election arguments are specious nonsense, but you basically, they're justified tit for tat because of the Russiagate stuff. Um, and he said, no, the Titanic wasn't justified in striking an iceberg, but it sank nonetheless. You can't view Trump in isolation. He's the current manifestation of a drawn out collapse of everything claimed to stand for, but never really did. Biden is no better. May they all rot. And at that point, Greg, I can just say, well, you have a nice day then. There, you know, I... I can't really, yeah. You know. At this point, it's just to say your newsletter sounds fascinating. I'll take a pamphlet and uh, give them a fake name, name, address, and phone number. That's that's the best way to deal with these people. We are living in difficult times where people fear having thought-provoking conversations about pressing issues. And although we're in the midst of an information explosion, there are a lot of forces aiming to distort what's true. I created the Bill Walton Show to provide a forum for in-depth thought-provoking conversations with leaders, artists, entrepreneurs, and thinkers. Please join me at thebillwaltonshow.com to explore what's true, what's right, and what's next.
1: All right. Speaking of politics attracting the very best of people, let's talk about our final martini now. And Barack Obama is out with his third autobiography, And it's not the last because his current autobiography does not go through really the vast majority of his presidency. It only goes up to 2011. So you're going to have at least one more autobiography, possibly two. I don't know if anybody's ever had five autobiographies before, Jim. But uh, if there is a record on that, I'm sure Obama's going for it. Uh, You pointed out the morning jolt uh, briefly today that you're reading this book back to front and uh, Obama decided that Benjamin Netanyahu was the major obstacle to Middle East peace because he wouldn't make the first dramatic concession in talks with the Palestinians.
0: Yeah. uh, By the way, for those wondering, it's not every sentence and every word back to front. I just started in the last chapter (laughs) and working my way forwards. Um, It's not quite Twin Peaks, the, the, the red room speaking backwards. Um, and yeah, so the first, the last chapter be- is really about Obama and Netanyahu and Israel and Middle East peace. And the, he, he makes this sentence that I feel like illuminates a lot about Obama's mindset. I don't say it's a Rosetta Stone, but you're like, oh, okay, all of a sudden this, this makes a lot of sense. He believes that because Israel was the stronger of the two parties between it and, and the Palestinians, they were morally obligated to make the bigger and you know, more uh, substantive concession to start the process of peace. It will not surprise you Netanyahu did not see things that way. And he kind of looked at that, like, oh, okay, like, I saw that. And it's like, okay, this is why Obama had a lot of trouble with negotiations because he probably has this philosophy over all kinds of things that if you're the most powerful one, you're morally obligated to effectively give away something for nothing, that the weaker party can make a symbolic concession, but you have to put something significant on the table in order to get things rolling. Powerful entities don't get to be powerful entities by giving away something for nothing. And what's more, I think in these circumstances, you know, Netanyahu clearly didn't feel like he was necessarily, he may have felt like he was somewhat stronger than the Palestinians, but his country's under attack. His country's constantly under threat from Hamas and Hezbollah and Katusha rockets over the border and uh, suicide bombers and, and, you know, Iran threatened to wipe them off the map. Like, you know, I, I don't think Netanyahu felt like, oh, I've got so much power that I can make this big concession in order to get the ball rolling. I think also Netanyahu felt like, well, these people keep trying to kill us. Why am I obligated to make the first concession there? And it's very easy to picture Obama and Netanyahu going around in circles as Obama feel like, no, but you're stronger. So you have to do this. And Netanyahu saying, no, we don't. <laughs> I imagine that's probably what it is. So the end portrait of Netanyahu is very negative from Obama, not surprisingly, but he basically kind of you know paints this idea that uh, Netanyahu was obstinate, that he was always negotiating in bad faith, that he kept making promises and not following through on them, and that he never really intended to follow through on them. And the only glaring big, you know, it would all make sense, Greg, except for the fact that Netanyahu has signed three peace treaties in the last year. <laughs> so uh, maybe he is willing to do a big to find peace, but he wants to make sure the security of his country is addressed in them. And in those circumstances with the Palestinians, yeah, no, he couldn't do that. Circumstances of Sudan and the United Arab Emirates and Bahrain, he did feel like he could do that, and it's just kind of—I think it's very revealing. All of a sudden, it's like, okay, why did Obama not succeed here? Because he had brought to the table this philosophy about who is obligated to make concessions that simply was not workable to the Israelis, and things never really got past that point. Yeah, everybody's got a grand vision for how peace in the Middle
1: East ought to work, and uh, it's obviously very difficult. But uh, I think one of the things we've learned through the Abraham Accords is hey, you have a chance to make money by uh, making this peace deal. You can have better economic ties and stronger economies for everybody. Should mean more economic and uh, political stability all around. And oh, by the way, the Iranians are the real enemy of <laughs> the region. And that seems to work. Here's anyway, something. Anyway, Jim, on that note, we'll call time. See you tomorrow. See you right. tomorrow, Greg. Actually, see, oh, no, actually, see you guys, sorry.
0: <laughs> see you Monday, Greg.
1: Jim Garrity, National Review. Don't forget about his new book, Hunting for Horsemen. I'm Greg Columbus, Radio America. Please don't forget to subscribe to the Three Martini Lunch podcast if you don't do that already. We're always extremely, extremely grateful for those five-star ratings and your kind reviews. Also, remember, you can get us on those home devices. You just have to say, play Three Martini Lunch podcast. Have a great day. Have a great weekend. And please join us Monday for the next Three Martini Lunch.